You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. We're going to have a, a fun conversation today. A, a few weeks back, I read an article uh, from Emily Hamilton. She writes at Mark and Urbanism, and I've read her stuff before. Many of you probably have as well. Uh, this one was picked up by the Foundation for Economic Education. They're holding a, a conference in June, and Emily and I are both going to be there. Uh, looking forward to that. I thought the article, which was titled The Hidden War on Affordable Housing, was very provocative, had a lot of interesting thoughts and insights behind it. And I, I just liked the thinking. And I thought, I would love to have a conversation with Emily. And so we were able to arrange that. And I'm happy now from the Mercatus Center to welcome Emily Hamilton. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm a big fan of your work. That's very generous of you. Thank you. I, I'm looking forward to meeting you in person in Atlanta and hanging out with a lot of people and, and having good conversation. Why, why am I so excited about this one? It's It seems like a lot of fun, huh? Yes, definitely. Very much looking forward to that. I do conferences all the time, and uh, it's rare that I have one on my calendar like that where I've got it circled like four times going, these are my pals. They're all going to be there. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Let's talk a little bit about the piece that you wrote. You you wrote this originally in, in market urbanism. It, it got picked up because it's very good. Can you talk about the impetus behind it? What prompted you to write about this? What What was the issue you were trying to kind of bring to the fore? Actually, watching the movie Brooklyn is what really brought this uh, to top of mind for me. And seeing the experience uh, in that movie of recent immigrants from Ireland living in New York City and the, the struggles that they faced, but also the opportunities for housing that they had, which was really portrayed well, I thought, in the movie. The story is about a, a group of people who live mostly in boarding houses. And it's just an opportunity for housing that is no longer legal in most American cities today, but it was a type of housing that was uh, crucial in the lives of many immigrants when they first arrived in this country. I think there's a sense today, looking back, that this was somehow evil. Uh, somehow this was, you know, exploitative that these kind of buildings and structures, uh, are just unethical today. And that's why we don't do them. Is that why we don't do them? And how would you react to that notion that this is, uh, essentially immoral kinds of housing? I think it's a mix of reasons why we no longer have that type of housing. It's, it's certainly fueled on the one hand by progressive desires to, ensure a minimum living standard for all Americans. But I think there's also a lot of self-interest uh, in terms of people within neighborhoods who want to make the minimum level of housing unaffordable to people who would previously have lived in this type of housing when it was legal. So it both fits with people's generous desires to make sure that everyone has a certain standard of housing, but at the same time meets their self-interest to protect the standard of living that they want to see in their neighborhoods. 
my good friend Joe Minicosi with Urban 3, I, I know you're familiar with Joe's work. In this talk he gives, he talks about a building that he originally worked on with one of the developers in Asheville. And they wanted to build micro apartments. They wanted to build 250, 400 square foot apartments in this building. And the, they went to the bank and the pushback they got was, well, we need a market study. This is not stuff that's normally done. Uh, the city was concerned to, you know, are, are these are, these seem really small. They pushed through the process and they got them built. He said they're, they're the highest leased spaces that they ever constructed. There's huge demand for them. They never go unfilled. When someone moves out, someone moves right in. You know, when we look at a place like New York or, you know, San Francisco or one of these really, really hot housing markets, why aren't we building more of these kind of things? It seems like there's a massive demand for them. Definitely, uh, particularly because there aren't a lot of housing options on the market right now for young single people who are starting out in their careers and may not be able to afford a larger housing unit. These are, seems like a clear match between demand and, and supply that's often very difficult to build today. I would point out that one difference between micro apartments today and boarding houses or single room op- occupancy hotels from the past is that in the past, this, this very affordable, minimal standard housing was usually built by splitting up existing homes into much smaller units. And that's the way that you can get a really affordable housing. Whereas when you build brand new construction micro apartments, they still might be out of reach for a lot of people. Uh, Obviously, the construction of new micro apartments is the first step to what could become more affordable housing after it's been around for many years or decades. But it's not, not quite the same process as what landowners were able to provide in the past. I remember when I was back in college, I lived in a massive house with 13 other guys. And we all essentially had our own rooms and and what have you. I went around this house and I looked at it. There were fireplaces all over and, you know, uh, really fancy banisters. And I mean, it was like a really high quality place. At some point, the highest and best use became not as a one wealthy person living in it, but as a bunch of different people essentially renting their own space and sharing some common facilities. Why doesn't that happen today? What's the thing that prevents those kind of things? And maybe not necessarily to students, but to, to families. I mean, why, why is that not something we see, particularly in, in places where you have really hot housing markets? Why isn't that happening? Yeah, well, it it does happen to some degree, as you mentioned, with students. And here in uh, D.C., there's certainly still lots of group houses that are um, rented out by groups of roommates, typically young professionals. But land use regulations have made it uh, generally illegal to create these um, slightly nontraditional affordable housing arrangements for families and single people. So when groups of roommates get together to be able to afford housing, they're living in perhaps non-ideal situations where you have a lot of people sharing one kitchen and a couple bathrooms, whereas if developers were allowed to build for these situations more easily, they could have better arrangements to meet their needs. 
in California in particular, parking requirements have been a huge obstacle to this uh, more affordable housing because a certain amount of parking is required for each bedroom rather than for a project as a whole. How are we trying to solve this problem? I mean, you, you talk a little bit in your article about the disaster of public housing. Let's talk a little bit about how the government has tried to, to solve these at, at the federal level, at the local level, and then maybe use that as a springboard into talking about you know ways we could, in 2017, do this maybe differently. At the federal level, most of the efforts have been either in the form of building public housing through urban renewal projects or, more recently, uh, Section 8 housing, which provides vouchers to low-income people that are often used in specified Section 8 developments but can also be used in other types of housing. And at the local level, inclusionary zoning is currently the most perhaps fastest growing type of housing affordability. And inclusionary zoning requires developers of new market-based projects to provide a certain percentage of units that will be set aside for low-income renters or home buyers. Uh, I should say not necessarily low-income, but renters or home buyers who meet certain income standards. The thing that I always struggle with is it seems like in our cities, we provide one of two options for people who have lower incomes. One is either substandard and declining housing, you know, housing that other people don't want, that is of low value, that is going essentially in, in the wrong direction. And we sometimes label these like slumlords and, and what have you. But it's it's stuff that is – there's no market incentive in a sense to improve it because you can cash flow the low rents and you just like watch it decline. The other one is these kind of crazy subsidized ones where I'm very suspect of kind of the underlying forces that are are being marshaled to to make those kind of things happen. Do those seem like the two options we pursue and and aren't they a little extreme to each other? Uh, Yeah, I certainly agree. On the one hand with the public housing or Section 8 housing that tends to be very low quality, there's well-documented problems with the issues of concentrating low-income people in this substandard housing and creating incentives for them to stay there rather than pursuing opportunities for better housing for their families in what might be a different location that that doesn't have access to the government subsidies. And then on the inclusionary zoning side, it just seems really impractical to provide the subsidized housing within new construction buildings where dollars are going to go the least far toward providing housing for people. And inclusionary zoning has provided just a drop in the bucket of the units that would be necessary to provide housing for all the people who would qualify for it. And one problem with both public housing and inclusionary zoning is that the units that are available typically have long waiting lists. So if we think about immigrants coming to the U.S. in the 19th or early 20th centuries, they could immediately find housing that they could afford rather than waiting months or years for publicly planned housing that um, would become available to them. 
I'm often baffled by this because I, I see those same numbers that you're describing, uh, where essentially we have this massive backlog of people who need housing and, and, and need it at certain price points. And then I turn around and I look at the market and I say, why is this so crazy? Why does this, you live in Washington, DC, right? Yes, I mean, uh, Arlington, actually. In Arlington. We're bombarded all the time out here in Minnesota with the statistics from places like D.C. And, and New York. And I get the argument that, okay, if we don't have to pay for a car and we don't have to pay for certain other things, we can put more into housing. But still, the housing prices are crazy. I, I've, I've seen statistics where people are paying 70%, 80% of their income uh, for housing. Not poor people by any stretch either. People of certain means that would have, you know, in other parts of the country options. The whole housing market to me seems a little bit crazy. Do you share that bewilderment? And I guess I ask that because to me, trying to solve one segment of it while the rest of it is crazy to me seems a little futile in itself. No? Certainly. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. The trend toward building a few buildings worth of micro apartments in some of these expensive cities is great and exciting, but it's definitely not going to go all the way. And I think that really reforming the institutions that are in place to slow down the development process where each individual neighborhood gets to weigh in on whether or not a new project will be built near their homes is the, the root of the problem uh, in D.C. And, and some of these other cities that just have crazy housing prices where middle-income people are struggling to find some place that fits within their budgets. I had someone earlier this week or last week chew me out on Facebook or on, on Twitter, I think. Who knows? They were cranky with me because we had posted an article about essentially migration and how people are moving in some cases from very expensive places to places that are more affordable. You know, to me, I, I didn't even think this was controversial. I didn't realize that I had struck a nerve with people who felt, you know, no, if you were born here, you essentially have like a right to stay here at a submarket price. And I had this ongoing conversation and then my Twitter feed just got flooded with people kind of angry about it. And I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll just listen for a while. Is there anything objectionable to having, let's say in this case, it was Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is bizarrely affluent and unaffordable. People depart Cambridge and say, you know, I'm frustrated with it. I can't afford to live here and end up in a place like Cincinnati which, you know, in my opinion, is a really great city. It's a city that is is growing and it's got a lot of things happening and a lot of opportunity to, to get housing at affordable prices and see it appreciate and see, you know, yourself build some wealth and equity, even as a starter home at a low end. Is this somehow wrong in 2017 or am I just, you know, interacting with someone in a bubble? Well, I definitely don't think it's wrong for people to move away from uh, expensive housing markets to places where their dollars can go further and definitely might make sense for plenty of households and individuals to make that choice. But I think the problem comes in when some of the best economic opportunities and highest income growth and most innovative economies 
are also located in these really expensive cities so that people who don't already have economic means might not be able to pursue the best job opportunities that are available to them if they can't afford rent in Cambridge or San Francisco or New York City. So I think that's the the real macroeconomic consequence of gating off these very, both very expensive and very productive areas to people of a broader income range. Wouldn't that be true, though, of the like the tech worker or the professional, but not of necessarily like the taxi driver or the barista or, you know, the person working a truly lower income type of job, their opportunities aren't necessarily going to be increased in that Richard Florida kind of way, you know, by being in the the, the big epicenter of you know, technology and, and change and we see in some of the coastal cities. Am I saying something crazy or is that not true? No, I agree that the the disparities in income opportunities are greater for workers of higher skills. So it might make sense for a tech worker to pay those crazy San Francisco rents because they can make substantially more money there compared to a lower productivity city. But it's also true that baristas and taxi drivers make more in San Francisco than they would in Cincinnati or Houston or wherever. But it often doesn't make sense for them to pursue that additional income or job growth potential because the housing cost is greater than the income differential for those lower skilled workers. Right. Let me put it this way. There's a certain part of my questioning of housing policy. And, and I will, I will freely admit that I don't consider myself a policy expert in graduate school and what have you. When, when I had to take the housing classes, they just baffled me. They, they made no sense to me at all. And it was largely because of this general skepticism. Maybe I have, it, it seems to me like if you're a very wealthy person in New York city or San Francisco or Ba, and you don't want your neighborhood to change, you know, I, I don't want that single family home to be converted into a house for, for three families at, at lower price points. I don't want the micro apartment building up the street because I, I just don't want that. That's not the character of my neighborhood. Isn't the downside of that policy that essentially you're not going to have that level, that, that strata of em- employee in your neighborhood? You're going to have to pay extreme amounts for daily services. And a lot of, you know, people who don't find opportunity in your community are going to leave. The feedback you're going to get from a market standpoint is your place is going to cease to function right. Am I in some like, uh, you know, Hayek delusion in that thinking or is there something I'm missing? Uh, No, I don't think you're missing anything. And that's why we read stories of teachers or firefighters going through just insane commutes to be able to work where they're employed. And inclusionary zoning seeks to have people of all different income levels living within one specific building. And we talked about the drawbacks to that policy. But in a freer market, I think it's very likely that we would see uh, buildings that are accessible to people of many different incomes within the same general area. So they might not live exactly at the same address, but it would be much more feasible for service workers or 
uh, lower income professionals to live near their jobs and would make these neighborhoods function much better, as you say. Now, not questioning at all the people who work in affordable housing, which yeah, that Twitter battle I got in uh, with a, was a housing advocate who, you know, uh, said, you know, maybe you should come out with me and, and actually work with people who, you know, are struggling. So I, I get that there are really good people out there trying to do good work. It, it seems to me, though, like a lot of the support or the, the kind of default for some of these inclusionary housing and other housing vouchers and what have you is in part and parcel the affluent saying, like, I don't want my neighborhood to change. And so I'm willing to essentially pay to accommodate people in someone else's neighborhood, as opposed to having the painful feedback of having my neighborhood not work. Am I crazy on that as well? I mean, is that something where, um, am I taking that a step too far? No, I don't think so. And I think that the, the real problem here comes when people who are, uh, higher income people who don't want their neighborhood to change, are, they're using the political process to keep their neighborhood as it is rather than bearing the cost themselves of keeping a neighborhood as it is without allowing for new growth. And when we see neighborhoods that just aren't allowing new housing, the filtering process that leads new housing to become affordable to lower income people over years and decades is prevented from taking place. So it becomes an enclave where only people of a certain income can afford a place to live. I'm from central Minnesota. We, we have tons of affordable housing here and lots of job opportunities. We have people trying to hire all the time here and they're unable to fill up those jobs. Now, there's a lot of people that are unemployed and there's a little bit of a skills mismatch, I will I will contend. I have the good fortune of traveling all over the country. I was in Rockford, Illinois last year. I was in Peoria, Illinois last year, both places that have seen layoffs and struggles, but also have a, a lot of job opportunities and a ton of affordable housing. I mentioned Cincinnati earlier. Uh, I think here's another place. What if our policy on housing switched from being one of looking strictly at housing, where we were in a sense trying to subsidize, you know, and counterbalance what I think are crazy out of touch prices, and instead focused on giving individuals more power and essentially more ability to, if they want to stay and make it work fine, but if they want to move somewhere else, and essentially migrate, which I think is a great American tradition of, of moving on to better opportunities. What would be the downsides of a, of a shift in that direction? I think that that's the policy that makes the most sense for ensuring that, that people have access to not just housing, but the, the range of consumer goods that they need is to subsidize individuals with money that gives them the potential to make their own choices about how best to use it rather than subsidizing housing directly in only locations that are determined by policymakers. I feel like the downside, you know, would be that some of these wealthy affluent neighborhoods would actually cease to function well. And, you know, okay, then they would have to make a choice. Do we pay like really high, high wages to keep essentially people out that we don't want, or do we have to start being more accommodating? I struggle with 
that side effect of our housing policy. It, it, it feels like we are saving. I mean, I can just look at the neighborhoods here. It feels like we are saving people who don't want their neighborhood to change from any like painful feedback that their neighborhood actually doesn't work unless it does change. Yeah, I think that's right. And there may come a point at which these neighborhoods realize, oh, we need to allow more housing construction or we're not going to have any teachers for our kids or anyone to work in the restaurants that we want to go to. But unfortunately for income mobility consequences, this seems to be that workers are willing to endure very, very long commutes in order to get to jobs that pay a little bit more than what they could make elsewhere. So these higher income people who are preventing new housing construction in their neighborhoods and cities are really causing bad consequences for the people who work in those neighborhoods. Right. I want to ask you a question that might seem unrelated and out of the blue. I want to ask you a question about a a basic universal income. And particularly with when I've seen this discussed, and I'm actually intrigued by the idea and think that it might be a way to change some of these crazy distortions that I see in our system. One of the things that I've seen put forth is that you would have a different universal income if you lived in, say, San Francisco or Washington, D.C. or New York than you would if you lived in, say, Cincinnati, Ohio or my little hometown of Brainerd, Minnesota. And the reason would be because it costs more to live in New York than it does in Brainerd. You know, it costs more to live in D.C. than it does in Cincinnati. Not debating whether universal income is a, is a good approach or not, but is that notion that essentially, let's just say it's double, you know, you live in, you live in New York will give you double the amount of money than if you live in Brainerd. Doesn't that freeze essentially the inequities or the, the kind of bad outcomes that we currently have in place and not allow them to kind of be smoothed over? In other words, if you could live really well in a place like Brainerd or Cincinnati or what have you, but live really poorly in New York on the same amount of money, why wouldn't we allow people to make that decision? And I think more people would move to places uh, and we'd have more opportunity in places like Cincinnati. Is that a concept that seems foreign or is that uh, something that you know maybe makes some sense? I haven't really thought about universal basic incomes that would be adjusted for purchasing power before. I think it's an an interesting idea, but I think that you raise an important concern that we wouldn't want a case where people can live on a universal basic income in a low productivity, low cost part of the country and just face an incentive to go somewhere like that where they might want to live just on their basic income alone without working. Uh, Tyler Cowan here at the Mercatus Center has written quite a bit about how work is important, not just for economic growth and uh, productivity, but also it's such an important part of human happiness and the ability to learn and grow in a career. And so I think that that's one important side effect that should be heavily considered in any sort of UBI policy. I'm getting kind of back to the migration thing. One of our writers, a guy named Johnny Sanfilippo, he writes uh, the blog Granola Shotgun, which is 
really kind of out there. I was going to say it's out in left field, but it's out in right field too. It's, it's all over the place. And the guy kind of has a certain level of brilliance to him that I, I've come to find endearing. He told me once a story about some three young people who lived in San Francisco and they couldn't find their own places. What they wound up doing is, is, uh, getting a house together. And he told me how much they pay for rent. I can't remember. All I know is that it was astounding. I mean, it was like, each was paying double what I'm paying for my mortgage, something along those lines. And they were paying that. They were each paying that for their own room, right? So they, <laughs> they didn't have a house like I have. They have, uh, you know, single rooms in an apartment and they, they were, you know, working multiple jobs. These are very hardworking people working multiple jobs to try to make ends meet uh, because they liked living in San Francisco. I totally get that. And there might have been a point in my life when I was, you know, in my younger twenties when that, that made a lot of sense to me. But he talked to them and essentially, you know, counseled them like, hey, at some point here, uh, you may want something different. And why not move to, and I actually am going back to Cincinnati because I think it was Cincinnati where he had a neighborhood he was looking at. You know, why don't you move here? And they, and they did. And on a much lower burn rate of income, they were able to essentially have uh, a different style of living. It wasn't uh, a San Francisco style of living, but it was one with a lot less work in terms of labor to make ends meet. It was one with a lot more free time and uh, net kind of a much higher standard of living. How much of our housing policy today, I, I think, robs people of those kind of choices or doesn't present those kind of choices presents them as essentially equivalent when maybe they're not. Yeah, there's a, such a bias among the people who write about urban policy to focus on the expensive cities and the housing issues that they face rather than the Cincinnati's where housing is abundant. And if there's a, a problem with people being able to afford housing there, that's probably an income problem rather than a housing problem. But I think that the goal needs to remain to make the cities that are currently unaffordable but are in high demand affordable because the reason that they're in such high demand is because of the economic and uh, growth opportunities that they present. And it's it's just, uh, I think, difficult to impossible to replicate a Bay Area or a New York City in another part of the country because those cities have such a history of organic economic growth and agglomeration benefits within and across industries that just the same economic opportunities can't be recreated in other parts of the countries where housing is more abundant. Okay, this is what I want to get at. Now you're saying something that I think is a good counter argument. And let me restate it. And you can tell me if I'm hearing you correctly. You're saying that a place like New York is just going to be unaffordable. It's just going to have really high prices because so many people want to be there. And so many people want to be there because of the economic opportunity. And you really can't transfer that economic opportunity to other places. Is that a fair summation of what you just said? Uh, I, I certainly agree that the economic opportunity of a New York City can't be transferred to somewhere else, but I don't think it's necessary that places with high demand like New York City have to have high housing, or at, at least not anywhere the prices that they currently have. 
people have described the single uh, room occupancy hotels and boarding houses of the past as the lowest rung on the housing ladder. And what's happened with urban policy is this lowest rung has been eliminated so that there's there aren't affordable opportunities that the least well-off people in a city can access. Okay, let me let me say something then that might be a little controversial from an economics standpoint. I get the notion that, you know, the fire of New York's economy is is like burning really hot right now. It's really strong. Is the national policy should be, you know, let's try to get some more wood on that fire. Let's try to get that fire going even bigger. Or should it be, let's try to get some of that fire transferred over to a place like, I don't know, Philadelphia, Baltimore. I mean, here's two cities within, you know, not daily commute distance, but certainly, you know, enough to have a regional back and forth economically where you have massive amounts of economic distress and, you know, whole neighborhoods that are in kind of terminal decline that would be very affordable if you could make some some policy changes and have some of that fire kind of burning in those places as well. Is this a situation where too much of a good thing in one place is not healthy? I don't think that national economic policy should be focused on either promoting more job growth within currently very productive, very expensive places or moving it necessarily to other places. I think that the only way to to allow for the highest possible economic growth is to allow firms and individuals to decide where makes sense for them to locate. Um, if we think about industries that are currently situated in one geography, like, of course, the tech industry tends to locate in the Bay Area or the entertainment industry tends to locate in Southern California, that's an organic process that, that happens over time as certain factors make those areas attractive to certain industries. And I think that government policies that either try to perpetuate that in current areas or try to move economic activity to places that are currently less in demand are going to result in fewer opportunities for economic growth and income and job growth because these uh, cluster economies are based on so many individual decisions that just can't be replicated by public policy. I hear you. And I agree with you, but let me, let me throw this out. You know, what about the fact that we're making these massive infrastructure investments? Uh, what about the fact that we at the federal level subsidize certain types of housing? I get back to the earlier conversation about, uh, maybe sometimes these places will burn so hot that they will become unaffordable. And the feedback you get is that you know, things stop working. They can't get teachers. They can't get police officers. They can't get what have you. And, and that's one of those natural market feedbacks that suggests, Hey, this should be happening more in, in Philadelphia and, and a little bit less in New York. It seems a little bit like our policies go the opposite direction. In other words, we, we, we seem to be fighting this fire at the source, you know, how how do we deal with the affordable housing crisis here in DC? How do we deal with the affordable crisis here in, in New York, as opposed to, you know, looking at it in a broader kind of national framework? 
do you have a reaction to that? Because I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree with you that firms and individuals should should make these decisions. But we're also really distorting the marketplace that they're playing in, are we not? Well, I would say that the move toward Section 8 housing away from public housing provided by the federal government is a slight move away from directing where affordable housing resources go geographically. And certainly inclusionary zoning efforts are usually run by local governments so that they are local policies addressing local affordability challenges rather than trying to get people to live in places that are already some of the most expensive places. But to your point that cities face a constraint at which after a certain point of becoming too expensive, they will cease to function well. I think that that's absolutely true and that there there is a price of unaffordability at which a Bay Area becomes less desirable than it is because services cease functioning like schools and uh, service industries and transportation because the people who would work in those industries simply cannot afford it. If you look at the Bay Area, which I'm, I'm probably more familiar with the infrastructure in Cal- Northern California than in the Northeast. If, if we look at the Bay Area, you see the federal government investing lots of money in what I essentially would call commuter rail, not rail connecting one place to another, but rail that is designed to bring people from more, you know, cheaper neighborhoods on the edge to the, you know, more affluent or more productive neighborhoods in the center. To me, this is a federal policy that is essentially trying to circumvent the difficult feedback that these San Francisco neighborhoods should be experiencing when they become so unaffordable. Essentially, I feel like you're trying to bring in workers you can pay less instead of having to pay them more and deal with the consequences, you know, or, or adapt uh, a different housing approach. Is my take on that valid or am I seeing something that you're not, or, or am I seeing it wrong? No, I, I think you're right. Um, that, that federal infrastructure investment distorts uh, housing market policies. But I think that it's, true all across the country, whether we're talking about investment in rural infrastructure that's serving a declining and small population or infrastructure in urban areas that's allowing problematic housing policies to go on. There are plenty of distortions in infrastructure policy to go around. And I'm not sure which effect is larger, if it's the you know, subsidizing people who live outside of these expensive cities or whether it's allowing uh, labor markets to grow geographically in these expensive regions. It's just that, you know, the idea, and I, I'm with you, I, I totally agree the notion that you, know, you take a place like Silicon Valley, you take a place, you know, the Bay Area, and you look at the, the massive growth that they've experienced. And it, it's hard not to say, you know, great, this is, this is excellent for our economy. Um, this is a source of innovation. You know, this is driving all kinds of economic improvements ar- around the country, around the world. This is a great thing. But I also step back and look at the conversation they're having there on their housing. And it just seems to me to be this bizarre intertwining of 
distortion after distortion after distortion. In fact, I was in, um, uh, what was that little, what was that city? I was, I was going to say little, it was like a 200,000 people, little for Northern California size. (laughs) Um, and they, they were telling me about how, you know, basically prices, they've been going up for years. They're going to continue to go up. And the mantra was, you know, prices only go up. And I said, well, didn't you have prices go down in 2008? I was like, oh yeah, it was horrible. Uh, but by 2010, we were back going up again. And there's, you know, no reason to suspect that prices will ever, you know, not go up. I'm not even exaggerating what they were saying. They were adamant that prices only go in one direction. And therefore, uh, we must be doing, you know, all these other things, whether it's transit investments or affordable housing subsidies or inclusionary zoning or what have you you know, because prices only go in one direction. It it just felt to me like I was in a different kind of bubble world where where the actual like market feedback just ceased to work. Maybe I'm just lamenting to you because uh, I don't get it. I feel like we try to simplify it down to, you know, this family can't afford the house, therefore let's find them a house they can afford or give them money. I almost in a like Nassim Taleb kind of, via negativa way, feel like we need to pull out some of the distorting things and see where prices actually end up at the end of the day. Because it, it seems to me like they'd have to be more rational than they are now. Yeah. As you say, there are so many interconnected issues when we're talking about housing policy. And an important one is the public policy goal of promoting home ownership as an investment that goes up in value over time. And that's been hugely problematic in creating incentives for homeowners to treat their house as a a scarce resource that they need to protect from competition, just really misdirected resources toward housing that could better be invested in other industries. I want to end up by talking about just the human aspect of this a, a little bit too. I was in Portland and was chatting. We were out uh, looking at some transit stops and one of them, we had a bunch of neighborhood activists with us and we were walking around and I was, I was talking with one of the gentlemen in that group and and he told me that he was paying $3,000 a month for his rental. I don't know what he did for a living. He was not a professional. He was doing, you know, blue collar, non-professional kind of work and you know, maybe he was making a decent living. It didn't seem like that from my conversation. It, it feels a lot like the distortions that we have are, we can describe them as people struggling to make ends meet. But I actually look at it a lot more of this. We're just struggling. Uh, we are just robbing people's future from them. We are, in a sense, uh, not allowing them to build their own wealth, their own security, uh, their own, you know, safety cushion, what have you. Can you talk a little bit about the human side of this and what you see as some of the kind of real human downfalls of our, our current approach? Yes, I agree completely that it's just a, a sad situation when people of all the way from middle income down to the least well-off person in a city might be struggling to find housing that fits within their budget. And that's if they're taking the opportunity to pursue a job or whatever else is drawing them to an expensive 
city, they are then forced to trade off good personal finance where they could be saving for their futures. I think it's just a, a human tragedy when we think about that the urban policies that we've discussed are falling hardest on the least well-off people in a city who are least able to bear these preferences of higher-income people who just want to prevent housing below a certain standard from being built anywhere near their homes. I see the stories that affordable housing advocates put forward, and they're very compelling. They're, they're, they pull at your heartstrings. But I often feel like we're not getting to the real kind of crux of things, which is if we find people an affordable place to live, that kind of solves, you know, whatever the immediate problem is. But it doesn't necessarily put them on a path to independence. It doesn't put them on a path to actually getting their own economic security. It feels a lot like even our best intentions uh, trap people in a place where they're not, they're not able to realize their full potential as, as humans. I don't know if you have a, a thought in those regards. I think you're right. Yeah. In the power broker, Robert Caro has a great section where he talks about a neighborhood in the Bronx that was made up of largely recent Jewish immigrants who had moved from the Lower East Side tenements into this new neighborhood in the Bronx where they had higher housing standards and uh, healthier, safer conditions than they had in the Lower East Side. And this move happened within, you know, less than a generation. And that income mobility that we see from market-provided low-income housing is not what we tend to see in government-provided low-income housing where the problems of intergenerational poverty are well-documented. Right. I do this sometimes when I'm giving a talk, uh, if we get on the topic of housing. Um, I will say to the audience, I will say 2001 to 2008 was a housing, and then they'll fill in, they'll, you know, they'll go bubble. And they say, okay, um, 2010 to 2017 is a housing, and everybody kind of looks at me like, what? And, and then someone will sheepishly say, uh, recovery? And I'll show them the chart, you know, basically here's the bubble and then here's the recovery. And it's two different terms for essentially the same distortion. Like we are, you know, back to where we were and, and then some in 2008 when we look back and say, well, that was a bubble and now we are, you know, recovered essentially to a bubble. Do, do you have like existential concerns about housing in this country and that, you know, we really have uh, kind of foundational problems that maybe we're dealing with uh, around the edges, but kind of thwart any ability to do good things at the local level? The macroeconomic areas is out of my area of expertise for sure. But I would say that I find it mind boggling that the federal government has not only perpetuated the policies that facilitated the 2008 housing crisis, but created new policies that allow people with uh, minimal assets and, and minimal credit to purchase homes. And I, I think that's all a part of this idea that home ownership should be seen as a great investment, whereas that is not necessarily true for everyone uh, and shouldn't be encouraged by public policy. I, I feel like we have done everything we can to prop up 
housing prices, I believe that you're younger than me. I'm 43. I'm going to say this, and I, I don't say this as a, as a way to bash baby boomers, although that's gratuitously kind of fun from time to time. I can, I can do that because everybody can bash their elders and then, right? It feels like we have done everything we can to prop up the housing market while the baby boomers, you know, find ways to essentially cash out and, and sell and, and get their nest egg out of their home equity. Uh, but the cost of that has been millennials and younger people have had, and poorer people, people who are trying to get entry level type of homes have experienced much, much higher housing costs than they otherwise would. I understand the macro policy is the real effect that we're kind of, you know, trapping younger people who have all the student loan debt, all the other kind of, you know, drag on their upward mobility at the start of their professional careers. Are we kind of hitting them in a, in a double whammy here? Yeah, I think so. The, the mismatch between housing supply and demand in cities where housing supply stopped being so elastic really took off in the 70s and 80s in a lot of these cities. So people who got in before that time period or shortly after it have uh, had opportunities for huge house price increases, but it has intergenerational consequences for the younger group coming along who will really struggle to be able to come up with a down payment for a house as uh, prices keep rising. Emily, thanks so much for taking the time. Has this been helpful for you? Absolutely. Yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. I want to chat again in June when we get together. I, I, I do feel like there's a lot to explore here. I never speak poorly of housing advocates who are out there trying to do this hard work. I mean, I, I feel like they're doing an impossible task, but I feel like, you know, we economists, policy people, what have you make their job <laughs> 10 times worse. Don't we? <laughs> um, maybe by, by talking about these, these issues, but as much as, housing advocates are doing an important service, I think it's also important to look at the potential for the market to provide this service in a different legal environment. Yeah. I was grouping in all of my fellow public policy graduates who like to go and, and tinker with policies and, uh, and air quotes, solve the problem. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. These these policies that are making housing more expensive to begin with is certainly making the job of affordable housing more difficult. Right. Emily, thanks so much. You take care. Thank you. I look forward to meeting in person. <laughs> I, I look forward to that too. See you in Atlanta. Bye. Bye-bye. And thanks everybody for listening. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I'm trying to, to learn and uh, I hope that my questions... Uh, Helped you do likewise. Take care, everybody, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measure death! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city?
like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.